Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good. It's good to see everybody. Uh, continuing Romans chapter 5 today. If you were here last week, we covered the first five verses. And we're going to pick it up in uh, verse 6 and try to fulfill the rest of the chapter this morning. We'll see how well we do with that. Uh, I was undecided on where to start uh, with my introduction with the scripture. I think we're just going to start with the scripture and read, uh, and then we'll come back to it. Uh, our title this morning, our topic, is Christ our Substitute. And uh, that's what the rest of this chapter is about. The substitutionary death of Christ, our need in it. And my picture just blinked off here for some reason. There we go, we're back. All right, let's look at uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, and we'll read down through the rest of the chapter. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as though one man, uh, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness or the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more, those who received abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through the man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. First, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteous to, uh, to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Paul's legal argument for justification, for grace against sin and death. One of the struggles as a teacher, as a preacher, is to illustrate the love of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. It's impossible. It cannot be done. There, there's no perfect comparative. But I thought this morning I was going to use Team Hoyt. 
and that's what we're going to do. I've started to play a video, but uh, it's impossible to watch a video about these guys without getting emotional and breaking down. So I didn't want to do that in front of you, so I'm not going to play the video. I'm just going to talk about it. Uh, how many are familiar with Team Hoyt? At least have seen a story or heard something about them. This is a picture of them. This is the dad. I believe his name is Dick Hoyt. This is Rick Hoyt. Um, and back in 1977, when Rick was asked, uh, uh, I guess the dad is Rick. When Rick asked his, no, the son's Rick. He asked his father if he could run, if they could run a race together. He wanted to run a race that was going to benefit an athlete who had become uh, injured and could no longer compete. Um, it was a lacrosse player of, of, at his school, and I keep losing my picture, I apologize. Um, it had been very easy uh, for the dad to say, no, we cannot do that. That's just not something we're capable of doing. But rather than do that, he said, yes, we can do that, son. And he began to train. He was not a runner. He was, not, uh, he was a prior military man, but not a runner at all. Uh, and he began to train for this race and figure out how he could do this and not just run the race, but run the race with his son, Rick. And you see, Rick was born in 1962 and di uh, diagnosed with as a spastic quadriplegic. Did I say that close to right? You're my expert on all of it. Thank you. He couldn't use his arms or his legs at all. He's, he's pretty much in this constant state. He had to have a computer to, to communicate uh, what some of us might term helpless, but time would tell that no, he's not helpless. But dad decided they're going to do this. And so that first race they began to train with uh, and for, and to, to hear Dick tell it, he finished next to last but not last in the race. And that was their accomplishment. He said everybody thought they would run to the end of the block and turn around and come back. But no, they went the whole five miles or three miles or whatever the race was. One can go on and on about the dedication, the suffering, the accomplishments. They've done, I don't know, 60 or 70 races, marathons and dry, uh, uh, the Ironman competitions, everything. He, he has a little rubber boat. He had a little rubber boat and he would pull him on the swim. He had a specialized bike so that he could, this is him coming out of the water, carrying Rick to the bike to be strapped in so that he can pedal on the bike. Uh, and then they had a, a stroller where you could push him on the, the final leg of the Ironman, which is, I think, 26, 23 miles, something like that. Just farther than I've ever thought about. I don't even want to drive that far sometimes. <laughs> and they do this. And you can go on and on about this. But I want to focus on the example that Team Hort provides us for when we consider Romans chapter 5. Verse 6 says, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Without strength. Helpless. That's, again, there's no perfect picture. But that comes pretty close for us, doesn't it? That's about how capable we are to handle our own salvation. Quadriplegic unable to move, unable to speak, unable to do anything about it. But yet when we call, the Father says, yes, we can do that. And he sent his only son to die, to suffer, to struggle, to offer salvation. And in Paul's complicated dialogue, 
his legal argument where he lays it all out perfectly. I, I, I wish I could read it better because Paul writes such a wonderful argument for it. That's the picture of it. It's one picking up a, another who cannot do for himself at all and carrying him all of the way. If you take nothing else away from this lesson, I want you to remember that picture. And honestly, this picture doesn't even illustrate it because in this picture we see a young man who had the first the desire. And that's not even our case. Christ died for us when we were yet enemies of God. So even this does not illustrate it. But I want you to take that with you. Let's look at the scripture now. Christ, our substitutionary atonement. atonement. Again, verse 6, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Let that sink in. When we were without strength. And it says in due time. That phrase means that it came in God's perfect timing. I, I, I don't understand all that. I, I don't get it. In my mind, the thing to do would have been right after Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, then the cross. Does that make more sense to you? It does to me. You have the fall of man. We need deliverance. God steps in. Here's deliverance. Let's go from here. All right? Man, you messed it up, but here's the new plan. Let's go with that. But that wasn't God's timing, was it? Some 4,000 years later, roughly, Christ shows up on the scene, but in his due time, Christ died for us. Uh, it was God's perfect timing. It, was, it, it didn't catch him by surprise. He, he wasn't unprepared, but in his due time, when God said it was time, Christ came on the scene and Christ died for him. Why was that the perfect time? I don't know. I can speculate some things, but I don't know. And yet it shows and demonstrates that God is in charge. He is in control of even the timing of this. Uh, our deliverance came through our perfect weakness when we had nothing to offer. Not friendship with God. Do you understand that? That it's not that Christ died for you because you were a pretty good egg. It's not, it's not that Christ looked at Matt English and said, man, i got to have Matt on my team. If we can get Matt. <laughs> team, have him gather around. See him? That's the guy we need. See if he's in the transport. Uh, if, we can, if we can get him in the transfer portal, then we, we got it made in heaven. That's, that's not the case. They looked at Matt, they looked at Chris and said, oh, wretched man that he is. Enemy of God, Scripture says. And yet through that, God reaches down and offers his most precious gift. Through our perfect weakness, without hope, he, he offers himself. Our deliverance came through his perfect love. What greater demonstration than God sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to those who hate him, to those who live contrary to him, to his law, to his holiness, to his grace. And yet, he offers his most perfect gift. And our deliverance comes through his perfect wrath. Now, here's the truth that we lose sight of. The rest of it we hear so often. We, we, we hear that a lot. If you've been in church for more than a year, you've heard that over and over and over again. 
But oftentimes we leave this part out. We're saved when we, when we come to the point of salvation. We are delivered not from Satan. It's not Satan's wrath. It's God's wrath. It's God's perfect wrath that we're delivered from. So this perfect gift and our perfect weakness at a perfect time delivers us from his perfect wrath. And, and I've got to be honest with you. The next two verses confuse me. Verses 6 and 7. Look at those with me again, if you will. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I get verse 8. Verse 7 confuses me. Anybody else? Do those two demonstrate? Do, do those two things seem contrary? First of all, he says, for scarcely, for a righteous man would that one die. That seems like the, the greater truth to me. You would think if you're going to offer your life, but there's a righteous guy, that might be worth it. But then he, he follows it up and says, uh, yet perhaps for a good man, someone even dare, would even dare to die. And to me, good seems less than righteous. Does anybody else? Mine says, the New Living Translation says, uh, willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. Yeah, okay. A just person. A just person. I tell you, I couldn't make much sense of this. And I, I still don't know that I'm going to be able to, to make it. Like self-righteous? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. And, and here's, as I looked at the word study, uh, the, all I came up with was this. And I, and I, I may be wrong. So do your own word study. Follow up on this and, and correct me later if I am. It, it seems to be that with the righteous man there, there's no real relationship. You, he's a righteous person. Uh, everybody, Maybe everybody knows, but there's no connection. But if you look at the word where it describes a good man, there seems to be at least some sort of connection. And so there's maybe it's a relative or a friend or somebody you have a bond with. I don't think the English does a great job of the translation here. Maybe there wasn't a good English word to relate it to. I don't know, but that's all I could come up with. It's not that important, though, because the, the, the truth of it is and the culmination of it is where you're looking at the righteous or the, or the good person, uh, it, the truth is the same. Most people, don't, we don't want to give our lives up for that, but yet the, the, the dynamic truth is in verse 8 that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the ultimate demonstration. And David Guzik, he goes on about this for about 10 minutes on his podcast. And he does a great job of it. And he talks about how, you know, we, we love to have God demonstrate his love to us again and again, don't we? Just me, not y'all. <laughs> y'all don't enjoy the favor of God from time to time or, and appreciate that? Cause I'm sorry, okay, this is for me then. And honestly, there's times when I pray this, and it's probably not right of me. I'm wanting God to do something a certain way. And sometimes he won't. And I'm, I'm, I even get frustrated and to the point and say, God, I, and I'm just honest when I pray. I, I'm not real spiritual, but I'm honest. And I, and I say, I don't understand why you're not doing this. 
And I don't say it arrogantly because he's God and I'm me. And I'll even say that. I'm like, God, I understand you're God and I'm me. And obviously you're right, but I don't get it. And yet sometimes when I pray and God does something, he, he gives me that extra bit of grace. He gives me that, 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 that specific prayer that I pray. And he just answers it. And there's no other question, there's no other answer other than God did it for me. It demonstrates his love for me. And that gets me excited. I'm sorry it doesn't you. <laughs> Go ahead. Mm -hmm. In this classroom, we have people that we're regularly praying for that don't know. And it just seems like a no-brainer to me that God will answer that prayer. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, and there, are, there are times like that when it seems like God would just, like, you would pray it and boom, God would do it. But he doesn't always do that, does he? Uh, and, and those things do good. But there are times when he does. When you pray and he just, there's no other question than God did it. And, but here's the point that I'm trying to make with this after going on and on. Even though we love those little extra incentives, if you will, those little extra answers of proofs that God loves us, there is no greater proof than this verse right here. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. There may be extra proofs. There may be more recent proofs. I might pray something at lunch today that just God just works out, and that's a more current truth. But there's no greater truth than when, it, when, when Christ came and died on the cross for a wretched, helpless sinner like myself. When he carried me when I could not carry myself. This is the truth that Paul is wrapping and trying to get us to wrap our minds around. And, and, and the, uh, the, the contrast between the law that, that shows our unrighteousness, that proves our guilt, that proves that we are at enmity with God, and the grace that is delivered at the cross that overcomes that same law. By the way, whose law is it? God's law, right? Yes, absolutely. So it's God's law that condemns us and it is God that delivers us, the same God. See? And, and, and he does all of this while we're enemies of him. Now verses 12 through 21 is where Paul lays this out in this contrast between his law and his grace. And again, he, does, he, just, he, he writes such an intelligent argument. It, it starts off very easily, but it the more he just begins to wrap one truth around the other, it gets difficult. You have to read it several times to, to get every, all the meat out of it. Uh, we get to chapter 7, it's going to be even more complicated, but it, it's more fun. Uh, I love chapter 7. Always have. But his argument is lays out basically like this. Death came by the actions of Adam. And of course, we're talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now, interestingly enough... Death comes by Adam, who is not mentioned. Eve, that's right. Eve's not Adam is mentioned. What does that tell you guys? Women got all scot-free. Yeah. <laughs> Women got all scot-free. I don't think that's quite the truth. 
I like that answer, though. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, guys, you want to be leaders, that means it's on you. It's on you. Young men, it's on you. Okay? Understand that. That's what it means to be a leader. It, 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 doesn't, it means you take the hit. And when great things happen, you give the credit. That's what, that's what it should mean anyway. Okay? Adam's responsible. See? Adam's responsible. And, and, and Paul lays this out masterfully. And I know this, what I'm talking, that's not popular in today's culture, but that's just how God said it. So if you don't like it, write to the home office. Don't, don't send it to me. Um, so death comes by Adam, by, by the sin in the garden. Uh, so what does that tell us? Before the sin in the garden, was there death? No. no. That, it was not God's plan for there to be. How many of you are sick of death and sickness? Yeah, I think all of us can raise our hand there, right? That's not God's plan. That's not God's design. It's not what God implemented. Yet, because of sin, those things came. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that every illness or every difficulty is, is due to a, a direct cause of sin. That No, but because sin entered into the world, into this system, now we have all these problems. See? Uh, so death comes by sin because of Adam and sin when sin entered it, it, we've got to stop thinking of sin as this list of do's and don'ts and that's and we leave it at that it's not what sin sin is a power it's it's a spiritual power along with this being a list of right and wrong and and, and a list of laws and do's and don'ts it's also a power that entered into this world it has to be because before sin there was no sickness. There was no death. There was no shedding of blood. There were none of these things. Yet when sin arrived, when, when sin came, death by sin, this power entered into the world. A dark power, if you will. Some of you are into sci-fi and things like that. And uh, well, I guess with Star Wars, there's the dark side. See, that's not new with it. There, who wrote Star Wars? Who's the big guy? Lucas. That, he didn't figure that that's not new with George. George is stealing from the Bible here, and he doesn't even know it. Maybe knows it. I don't know. But it's a power. It's a force that entered into the world, and it accomplishes things. It accomplishes things for evil. See? And so death comes through the sin of Adam. And then with sin's presence came sin's power. And with the law came sin's imputation. Now, again, this gets somewhat confusing for me, and maybe it doesn't for you. Uh, I've got to find the verse here because I've, I've lost track of myself here. Uh, where does it talk about the uh, sin being imputed? Somebody find it. It's in verse, between verse 12 and 21 there somewhere. I should have highlighted it. Uh, 13, thank you. Right there at the top. For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. That word imputed means applied to your account. So this tells us and teaches us that when sin came, it brought its own power and it begins its destruction. But until the law arrives, apparently the law of Moses, because he's mentioned in verse 14, nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses, 
even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression. So, but when the law arrives, the law of God, then the imputation, the, the applying to the accounts, but the effect of sin was already there, was it not? Of course it was. Um, and I struggle with this because at least there was a law in the Garden of Eden, wasn't there? What was the law? Don't eat of that tree. They have one law. One. And they messed it up. And I'm so glad they did. Because if they had made it to my turn, then I'd have messed it up. And y'all have been reading about me instead of Adam. So I'm glad that Adam took the hit, not me. That'd be awful, wouldn't it? But sin comes, it brings its power, it brings its destruction. And then when the law comes, the law of God comes, then this imputation, this being applied to our account, comes also. Now, that opens up a whole can of worms of theological questions, doesn't it? So what happened to all those people from the time of Adam to the time of Moses? And, and, and here's, here, I've studied hard and I've got the answer. I don't know. <laughs> I, I know that, I, I assume that their account was, you know, they were on hold. Now, I do have a, a suspicion. I think that's why there was paradise. In, in apparently, with, across from Hades and the Great Gulf, remember we learned about that with the rich man of Lazarus. And I believe, I firmly believe, that at the time of the resurrection, that chamber was emptied. Because I believe that imputation was then satisfied at that point. See, it was always by faith. We learned that even Abraham was, we, talk, we already talked about that two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that. We talked about Abraham's justification was not by the law, but by faith, right? And Abraham's before the law of Moses, right? And, and so I, I think this, that's what this verse is talking about. Sin brought its power instantly. It, it's, it's destruction began. Death began. Uh, did you, you understand? And, and this is a horrible way to say it, but when we're born, we begin to die. That's the world we live in. We are in a, a state of decay. See? And, and that's, you know, I don't take that too far. Don't get depressed when somebody has a baby. You know, be excited for them. <laughs> But there's a real truth there as well. We, we began on your one day, you know, on day two, you're one day closer. <laughs> I'm sorry, but <laughs> that's just how it is. Why? Because sin entered and sin is a power. See, it's a force. But then the law came and all that, that those sins that we committed, that power was applied to our account. And because of that imputation coming on my account, then I needed deliverance, justification. And that's why we needed a second Adam, which is what the scripture talks about. Jesus Christ is that second Adam. Because as one man, death came by sin. Life came through the actions of Christ. The old and imperfect Adam brought a need for a new and perfect Adam. Where Adam brought sin and corruption, the Lord Jesus Christ brought redemption. Where Adam brought death and eternal separation from God, the Lord Jesus Christ brought life everlasting in the presence of God. And so 
Paul is making this argument to help us understand that it's not just a, a pie-in-the-sky spiritual type argument. It, it's, a, it's a very logical and legal argument as well. Uh, I, it's, it's so hard to separate these two things, and maybe we shouldn't separate them. But when we talk about salvation, we don't need to forget the reality of our guilt. That, that has to be a part of our salvation. If you've come to Christ, you first had to come to the reality that you are a sinner, that you have violated God's law. We talked about this last week. And that, that whether you know it or not, you are guilty. You are in need of deliverance from that penalty. And that is true because of what we've just read, Paul's argument. That because Adam, with Adam and Eve, sin literally came into the world and then was imputed to us. And we, by nature, are sinners. It's not that we sin and that made us guilty it's because we're sinners and that's why we sin. We, we are corrupt. We are without hope. We are without strength, unable to help ourselves in need of a Savior because of who we are and what we are. And because of that, the new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, had to step in. Because we were hopeless and helpless without him. And that's the truth of the matter. It, it, it's not pretty. Oh, but it's glorious. And it's exciting. Because while I was yet a sinner. A sinner. An enemy of God. While I was that Christ died for me. And that, my friends, is Romans chapter 5. Now, next week we're going to continue in Romans chapter 6 talking about how we're now dead to sin. That this power, we don't have to succumb to it anymore. And Paul's going to talk about how we simply don't have to do that because we now have deliverance and we have the Holy Spirit of God. And that's next week's chapter 6. And then my favorite chapter in the book of Romans, chapter 7. So you read chapter 6 and you think, man, I'm doing horrible. I'm a failure. I'm no good at this Christian thing. And thank goodness he wrote chapter 7 because then he talks about, now we're talking about the Apostle Paul, right? One of the greatest. And he's, talking about, he's going to tell us about the struggle he has with sin. By the way, you know why you have such a struggle with sin? This is a deep spiritual truth. I'm going to tell you why you have such a struggle with sin. It's because you like it. <laughs> and so did Paul. You know what? You hate it too. You hate it and you love it. And there's a struggle. And that's what chapter 7 is about. And that's why I call it the Dr. Zeus chapter. Because it reads like a Dr. Zeus chapter. That that I would do, I do not. But that that I would not do, that I do. <laughs> Red sock, blue sock. Yeah. <laughs>
you know. <laughs> and so that's where we're headed in the next couple of weeks. Thanks for coming. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Chris.